Hi, everyone. Hi, Dad. Hi. Hello, Ford. My son has <laughs> traveled from our other congregation with me uh, this morning. I'm Dave Burden. I am not Randy Drawn. I think Randy Drawn might actually still be on a plane right now on his way back from Africa. Um, but get to be with you guys here this morning, opening up the word. Um, and like Kevin said, we've been journeying this summer through the Apostles' Creed and looking at what the creed, because the creed isn't scripture, looking at what the creed asserts uh, through passages uh, that really helped form the creed, passages in scripture that shed light on the doctrine that is encapsulated inside these summary statements of the historic Christian faith. This Apostles' Creed has been around for you know, roughly 2,000 years. Um, and what the creed really is, is it's, it's like a firework. Uh, I don't know if you guys shot any fireworks off. Uh, fireworks have gotten better the older I've got. I don't know if that just means I have more money to spend on them than I did when I was younger, but we did the ones with like the tube and the, you know, the, it's like a little ball with a long, long string. And, you know, it's a very, very small thing, right? When you drop it down in there, but once it gets lit and gets up into the sky, it covers a lot of ground. That's a good picture for the Apostles' Creed. It's a very compact statements, but very pregnant with a ton of massive, you know, like life-shaping reality. So the apostles, this sums up what they taught about God, about the creation, about person and work of Christ, the Holy Spirit. You could argue that the entire gospel, that the whole of scripture is found right here in this apostles' creed. And it's what you say, if you're a Christian, it is what you say you believe. This is what I hold to be true, uh, and that matters for me today. Uh, there are a lot of things as Christians we can disagree on, uh, not these. These are, the, these are the non-negotiables of our faith. So I'm gonna ask Keaton, uh, Keaton, where's Keaton? Keaton, right, right? Keaton, yeah, you can cheer for him. He's coming all the way from the back to the front to read for us uh, out of the Gospel of John, chapter 19, a couple different sections of this that are gonna help us get into one of these sections of the Apostles' Creed. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Later knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus's lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. All right, let me pray for us. Lord, uh, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you that you say it's active uh, and in the hands of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it can cut to the heart. Uh, it can divide joints and bone and marrow. And so I pray, Lord, uh, that even in the faulty hands and mouth of me, uh, Lord, that somehow you would use uh, your word 
spoken and read uh, to literally be that firework uh, in our hearts, uh, that it would explode. Uh, this truth that maybe uh, a passage like this could just feel so familiar, uh, but I, I dare believe it's not familiar enough. It's not familiar enough. Teach us, Jesus, we pray in your name, amen. So we're gonna look at the section of the creed uh, today that is speaking to the person and work of Jesus and specifically this part of the creed where it says that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, he was crucified, he died, and was buried. I believe in Jesus Christ and that that happened, that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, he was crucified, dead, and buried. He died and he was buried, okay? So I was thinking about this in preparation for today and thinking about this section of the creed in light of the whole rest of the creed. And I'd argue that this is probably the least debated statement in the entirety of the creed. That of all the other parts of the creed, this part is the least debated. It's almost agreed upon by everybody. Like there's plenty of debate today and it has been since the beginning of time about things like how did the world come to be? Was the world created by God, by a divine being who spoke the world into existence out of nothing? Or is the world, you know, did it just happen? Was it a split second atomic moment, right? That we've now just kind of evolved into. Tons of debate about that, right? God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. There's tons of debate about Jesus being conceived by the Holy Spirit. How did that happen? Or how did Mary have a virgin birth? or the dual nature of Christ, Jesus being fully God and fully man. People have debated this for centuries, right? People debate the resurrection, the legitimacy of it, the authenticity of it, the believability of it. But no one, Christian or not Christian, debates the fact that Jesus was crucified on a cross, right? Where your cross necklace doesn't even have to mean anything to you religiously, but if you ask somebody what happened on the cross, a complete agnostic you know, unbeliever could tell you what that represents. That Jesus suffered, was crucified, he's died, and he's buried. But the cross, it, it's not just a historical event that occurred. It's not not that, but it's more than that. It's far more than something that just happened. It was something that happened in history for a reason. We believe, that's what you said, if you said that confession, that creed, we believe that Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried for a reason. It's not just like saying, hey, we believe that the Beatles are the you know, top grossing music act of all time. That also is true, but that has no impact on me. I don't go home and think about that very often, right? But Jesus crucified, dead, and buried, there's a why behind that. Why did he suffer? Why was he crucified? Why did he die? Why was he buried? And do we believe in that, not just that it happened, but that it had to happen, and the fact that it had to happen should ha happen upon me. It should affect me in a really profound way today. We've gotta get to the why. Until we begin to ask the why questions of what this creed asserts, right? Because that's what a creed does. A creed confronts us with the truth. It reminds us of the truth. It examines us with the truth. If we don't get to the why, we're in danger of missing the point. And the point is not just that Jesus was crucified, that it happened, that he died, he, he was buried. But if that's true, what about my life, what about your life should be completely different because of that reality? Why did Jesus have to die? 
why did Jesus, scripture says, choose to die? Because when he was explaining to his disciples a little bit earlier in John that he was going to the cross, he says this about his life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my father. What's he saying? He's saying what? I chose to do this. This was my choice. No one made me do this. I willingly did this. I had the authority to do it and I did it. And it was in agreement with a plan. It's actually theologically called the eternal covenant. It was in agreement with a plan between me and the Father before all of time. So I'm in agreement with the Father, but I'm choosing to do this. Why? Why did he choose so that all scripture would be fulfilled? We read in verse 28. So to get at the why, we're gonna look at the, the last statement of what Keaton read in John 19. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished, and with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. We're gonna look at this last statement of Jesus, it is finished, because uh, last words are lasting words, right? You maybe have heard that before, the final things that you say matter. Last words are lasting words. So during his crucifixion, just before his death, he says this, it is finished. And why should that statement, it is finished, Why does that not just affect our eternal life, but should shape our life right now? So two things. It is finished. We're gonna look at that for a little bit. And then I'm gonna kind of let you into my own head, which is a dangerous thing uh, to do. Uh, The second half of the sermon will honestly be a little more confessional. Uh, If it is finished, then the second thing is this, the finishing school of the cross. And am I in it? Am I in the finishing school? If you're not familiar with that term, I wasn't. I just kind of heard about it. The finishing school of the cross, all right? So it is finished, and then the finishing school of the cross. It is finished. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished, and with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Now the word finished, um, if you're like me, and I think this is probably a safe bet, Finished feels so unfamiliar to me. Like, I have four children. Nothing in life is finished, right? And even as you finish something, someone's unfinishing something while you're finishing the thing you think you're finishing. Hardly anything in this life feels finished. Emily and I talk about this often. She's a to-do list person. Are you a a to-do list? Like, I feel good about myself in my day when I get done with my list. Well, the problem is with your to-do list is is that you're not the only one writing on your to-do list, are you? At least once you get older. Well, I guess when you do chores as a kid too. As soon as you kind of scratch something off, life has put something else on your list, right? Oftentimes I go to bed with a longer list than I started the day with. Nothing feels finished. I was mowing my lawn yesterday, which is a miserable exercise in this humidity. I mean, horrible. I was mowing my lawn, and as I'm mowing my lawn, finishing mowing my lawn, yes, I cut diagonally. Here's what I was doing while I was mowing my lawn. I was looking at my house most of the time, studying all the parts of my house that are falling apart while I'm finishing mowing my lawn. 
look at this. Oh man, that window needs attention. That needs repainted. Those gutters are leaking. That wood is rotting. Nothing's finished. So finished, it is finished, is very unfamiliar to us. But when Jesus says it here, and the word that he uses there, it's tetelestai, comes, you know, kind of broken off from a root word, telos, which means to achieve one's ultimate object or aim, to carry out our purpose or task. When he says it is finished, he is saying it's complete. It's entirely accomplished. There's nothing left to do. It's whole. There's no redos. There's no repainting, recaulking, rebuilding, re-anything. Once and for all, it's done. Finished means nothing can be added. Nothing can be taken away. And when we, we think about it in the context of Jesus being on the cross, I mean, obviously he's suffering a horrendous physical and spiritual death for us, right? And we can think of it in terms of just kind of relief. Oh, like, man, it's over. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying, whew, finally. I, I, I'm done with it, right? It's over. That's, that's a very passive way of understanding this. If you literally look at the, at the, the tenses in the word, it's different than that. It's more like Jesus literally crying out in victory. I did it. I did it. I finished. The object, the aim for which I came and climbed up on this cross, the task that I came to fulfill, I did it. That's what he's saying when he's saying it's finished. I finished the race that was my race to run. So what did he finish on the cross? What race was Jesus running? If you're gonna understand, if, you, if, if you're gonna understand or, or the finish line is gonna matter, you have to understand the starting point, right? Like at the beginning of the Music City Marathon, what, what's there at the starting point? There's like a giant banner that says what, rock and roll or Music City Marathon? Is it called the Rock and Roll Marathon? Yeah. I don't run. <laughs> <clears throat> I exercise, I mean, I don't, just don't like running. Um, at the beginning of the marathon, there's a giant sign that says Music City Marathon, right? What, what's the giant sign over the race that Jesus was running? What's the start point? What was he finishing? Because if he finished something, it started somewhere. And what race was he finishing and for who? Well, if there was a giant banner over the marathon, or maybe... For Jesus' sake, I would I'd probably reach more into like triathlon world and like Ironman, right? Where like your shoes melt in Hawaii, that one. If there was a banner over the race that Jesus started at, it should say this, the Ironman of mankind's redemption. That's the race he's been running. That's the race that he ran for Adam. That's why Jesus was called the second Adam. Adam didn't run this race before us and therefore we didn't run this race, but Jesus had to substitute in for us and run this race for us. The iron man of our redemption. And scripture teaches us about this iron man, where it started. It actually started before the garden, but the first place that we get a glimpse of it is in the garden of Eden. Where Adam and Eve, this was the gunshot, if you will metaphorically, for the race that began. Where the gunshot of their sin, 
right, started this race. We're all of creation, it says in scripture, that was, it is now in bondage to decay. Everything is being undone, right? Broken down by sin, like my house. Everything's being undone and is affected by sin. And because of that sin, because of man's sin and because of God's holiness, his sinlessness, his otherness, there was an unclosable and a Hawaii Iron Man sort of distance, a necessary distance between God and us is what scripture says. Because of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, right? And because of that sin, Jesus understood, I don't care how much you train, I don't care how much you try, you can get every pair of hokas and the little gel thing and the little fanny pack with like in the water bottle that you hold, you can't run this race. No matter how hard you tried, you are not gonna be able to accomplish this. God knew this and he knew if the race was gonna be run, if it was gonna be finished, if the distance, the necessary distance between us and God was gonna be closed, he was gonna have to do something about it because we couldn't. And so, at the starting point of his marathon, of his Ironman, back in Genesis 3, it's actually, again, before that in scripture, but that's some deep, mind-bending theology stuff. In Genesis 3, we at least get a picture of it. There's a promise given right after the fall, right after they ate that forbidden fruit and the gunshot went off to the serpent, to Satan. Adam and Eve are in earshot of this and he says, hey, guess what? There's one that's gonna come, the seed from the woman and he's gonna crush your head. He's gonna defeat sin and death. He's gonna reverse the curse. That's referred to as the Edemic Covenant in theology. A promise by God to Satan and to Adam and to Eve, I'm gonna undo what you've just done. And instead, because y'all, a lot of people only think there's only grace in the New Testament, there's grace in the Old Testament. Remember, God said if you ate from the tree, you would surely die. Guess what they didn't do? Die. You see it? You will surely die turns into I'm gonna surely die for you. All the way back in the garden. I'm making a promise to you. And so the entire Old Testament, all the prophets, all the law, everything is just a giant preamble to this moment that Keaton read. Where Jesus on the cross in his suffering and in his death, he defeated Satan, he defeated sin and the wages of sin which is death. What's astounding about this, what's scandalous about this, if you say I believe that that's true, is is how he defeated death. That's what separates Jesus and Christianity from all the other world religions. You know what, I did a little bit of research on this, some of the lasting words, according to Buddhist tradition, the last words of Buddha are strive without ceasing. Keep going, keep working at it. You hear the difference? It is finished. I've finished it. I was the one who crushed death by being crushed for you. That's what's scandalous about about the cross. I was the one who was forsaken. That was another one thing he said. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I will be forsaken by the Father so that you will not have to be forsaken. He was the one, Jesus was the one who tasted total and complete separation from God the Father. 
says there when he died and he descended into hell. I mean, man, we could preach a whole sermon on this, but think about this. <laughs> the Trinity. Uh, perfect union, never created for all time before time existed. They were in a perfect relationship with one another and he was separated from God the Father. Like while I was dating at a distance, my wife, right? Uh, anybody had the grace of dating at a distance? Yeah. Isn't it just horrible what it does to your heart, right? You're just like, oh, I can't live without you, baby. Even though I'm in this relationship, all for me, right? (laughs) It just crushes you to be separate from the one that could love you the way you know you need to be loved, right? And that's two human beings who are sinful and imperfect. Jesus being separated from God the Father, I mean, we don't even have a category for this. Perfect relationship, perfect self-deferring love. And he endured total and complete separation from that so that you and I will never have to spend a day being separated from him. He was treated and crucified as a criminal when he had no offense and he was willingly and lovingly and joyfully going to that cross, is what scripture said so that those who could not finish the Iron Man, who could never get the record that we needed, could be set free by his. That is what you say you believe if you're a Christian. What 1 Peter three eighteen says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, what? To bring you to God. You hear it? To finish the race to close the distance, you're brought to God. It's why the temple curtain was torn in two at the moment of Jesus' death, right? Because that temple curtain basically was the separation between God and man and only one guy got to go in there one day a year. The high priest on the day of atonement, the holy of holies, the temple curtain being cut in half, it is finished as basically saying this, open for business, come on. The race is finished. You don't have to finish the race. I've finished it for you. You're mine. I've closed the distance, that infinite gap. So if that's true, we believe it is, if that's finished, if that's what it means that it's, it is finished, how should the finished work of Jesus and his suffering in love, him being crucified, him dying and being buried affect us in the here and now? Like, I don't know about you, if you've been around church for a lot of times, it's kind of like, I've probably heard everything Dave just said in some form or fashion. I know that happened 2,000 years ago, but does it have any power or any significance for me today? Sometimes doesn't it feel like that's fact, but, but where's, where's the firework? Where's the boom of the cross? Let me tell you maybe why the boom isn't there. Here's where we go into my confession, okay? The finishing school of the cross. Are you in it? Am I in it? Another way of saying that around here is, is are you in a discipleship relationship with Jesus? Right? A finishing school, I haven't been to one, clearly. But a finishing school, if you know what that is, right? It's a place where you send young men and women to teach them how to live, basically, in the society that they're about to grow up in. You go there and you learn the norms, the ways of who you're to be because of who you are. 
And that's what the school exists for. The school exists to shape you. I mean, you could honestly say it's like social sanctification is what it is. I'm gonna sanctify you for society in finishing school. Form these habits and these patterns in you, right? Well, the gospel and the cross and Jesus, you know, Philippians 1 says that he who began a good work in you, he's gonna bring that work to completion. So Jesus' work is finished, right? But I'm not finished with you. I'm finishing you. I'm completing you. I'm sanctifying you. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, but we're also sanctified by that. There's a progressive transformation that should be happening in our lives because of what we've been talking about. All the way to glorification when we get our new bodies, right? But I've already been given a new spirit. He who began a good work in you, he's, he's continuing that work and he's gonna complete that work. Are you in the finishing school of the cross? It's a hard question to ask yourself. Am I letting the cross and Jesus on the cross do his work in my life? How would I know if I'm in the finishing school of the cross? Well, here's two of my tells, okay? Two ways that I know or I don't, I know I'm not. I'm skipping school. I skip school all the time, by the way. I'm serious. <laughs> don't, you don't, that's not what I meant by that. <laughs> Honestly, we don't, we don't really skip school, we, we re-enroll in the school of the law of the flesh. That's what we do. I, I skip the school of the cross and I re-enroll in the school of law and in the school of flesh is what I tend to do. So here's one of the ways I know I'm in the finishing school of the cross of Christ. First way is this, when I'm finished trying to earn God's love and God's acceptance through my own effort when I'm done with that. When I've set down a life, because you hear what I said about Buddha, right? I live more like a functional Buddhist than I do a Christian most days. Most of my life is marked by striving ceaselessly to earn and get what I've already have through the finished work of Jesus, right? Another way of saying that is this. I'm done posturing or performing to prove that I'm good enough. Like we all probably, I know for me, this has marked so much of my life, I would call myself a performance portfolio Christian, right? And I'm out there showing you, you know, my portfolio. See my portfolio, see my portfolio, right? But the cross of Christ says that all Everything from my regeneration, I couldn't accept Jesus without him doing something in my heart through the Holy Spirit to my justification, to my sanctification, to my glorification. All of my rightness is accomplished by him. It's finished in him. And every single day, Dave Burden is either living out of that reality or I'm living to try to obtain that reality. I'm either living in his rightness or I'm living in my own rightness. And if I'm honest, the school that I spend a lot of time in is it's not the school of the cross, which says Christ's righteousness is where I rest and live and have my being. I often want to be more justified through my own works, not just in the Lord's eyes, but in your eyes, right? And just think about this for a second. 
Because I honestly, most Christians, if you've been a Christian for a while, I don't really, unless I really blow it, I don't really feel like God doesn't love me. I know he loves me, but I want every one of you to love me too. And when that's the case, you have to ask yourself this question. If I, if I don't just want to be justified in his eyes because of what Christ has done, but I want to be justified in your eyes because of what I've done well, then I actually don't want to be with him. I want to be him because that's what he is. That's what he will be one day. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess, you're right. You're Lord. So when I'm living in the justification Olympics every single day, I'm not just trying to get the love of God. I'm trying to be God. And he's saying, that race, you don't want to run that race. Adam tried to run that race. You will be like God. It's a race you can't finish. So the cross, when we come to the cross, the sacrifice that God required for sin, his just wrath for sin, he says, it's completely covered by my perfect life and by my death on your behalf. So you have righteousness. You don't have to go get it. You have standing it's secure. You have Christ's record. When you've maybe heard it said, God looks at you, he sees Jesus. Maybe even more important than that, when God looks at you, he feels about you the way he feels about his son. Oof. But guess what? God doesn't just love you because of what Jesus did on the cross. A lot of people believe that. God loves me because of what Jesus did on the cross. He loved you before Jesus did what he did on the cross. In fact, it was his love that took Jesus to the cross. His love is what made him go to the cross. It's displayed perfectly on the cross. So if you understand that, that love has a lasting and ongoing shaping effect in your life. And what it looks like, this is when I know I'm in the finishing school of the cross, is I can set down that performance justification Olympics and I can live as somebody who already has the love that my life is so desperately crying out for. I have it. I have the love of God. I am a son and daughter. I have an identity, a secure relationship. When I'm not living like that, I've either misunderstood the cross entirely or I've stepped out of the finishing school of the cross. So that's one of my tells. When I'm, when I'm spending so much try, time and energy trying to earn the love and acceptance that I already have, I know I'm not in the finishing school of the cross. Second thing. This is not a good sentence, y'all, but I was trying to figure out how to say it. You know you're, um, you're in the finishing school of the cross when you call sin, sin. So I wrote down, finished not calling sin, sin. I'm done with that. I'm gonna call what Jesus calls and God's word calls sin, sin. Because human beings, and the chief of the humans here, <laughs> I have this horrible habit. And I've, the habit's this, it's, it's a fleshly habit, which is not calling what scripture calls sin, sin. And here's how it works itself out in my life. I will, I will call what other people are doing sin. It's so clear to me, sin in your life, but I'm, I'm more nuanced than you are. That's how it works itself out in my head. 
it's really clear, yeah, but it's, it's more nuanced than me, right? It's clearly sin in your life and you're convicted of it, right? By me, but I'm more complicated. <laughs> and when we do that, that's just another way of not living in the justification we have in Jesus, but that's a way that I justify myself without the cross, right? When we don't call sin, sin, we do something very dangerous, and it's this. We actually empty the cross of its power. Because I don't need the cross to be powerful, because if, if what I'm doing isn't sin, then I don't really need Jesus to do that for me. And it's why, if the cross doesn't have power in your life, if you're not in the finishing school of the cross, it's why many people feel that the cross, yeah, it happened, but it has so little meaning or so little power is because ultimately they believe I'm actually really pretty much a pretty good person. And how I got to that conclusion was I stopped calling certain things that the Bible calls sin, sin. We've all got them. And how it works itself out is this. I, I compare myself, right? That's how I get my rightness. I compare myself to you. As long as what you're doing is sin and what I'm doing isn't sin, then I feel good, right? Well, the problem is, is I'm comparing myself to the wrong thing. So my cherry picking and ranking sin not according to what scripture calls sin. I mean, go, there's places like in Romans or Galatians where it talks about put to death whatever is, is in your, your flesh, sexual immorality, and it talks about all sorts of things. So a biblical sexual ethic, you know, you're, you're, you're not functioning sexually the way that the Bible calls you to. And then he ends that sentence and says, and greed, which is idolatry. And it's like, we got people who are ringing the bell, sexual sin, sexual sin, but I don't hear anybody ringing the greed bell. You want people to follow a biblical sexual ethic, but you don't want to follow a biblical monetary one? You see how we do it? I'm going to cherry pick, rank it out, usually based on what my family or some sort of cultural subset has said, hey, we're all going to do the handshake behind the scenes that we're all cool with not calling this part sin, right? And so we stack ourselves up, and that's how we feel right we feel justified. It's a comparative goodness. And my faith is in how I stack up to you, not to Jesus. So my sense of confidence, my sense of peace, my very life, the force, the power of my life doesn't come through the sheer grace of being forgiven by God but I ease my conscience by misinterpreting scripture and saying, I'm okay, as long as I'm better than you. And that selective sin scale <laughs> of questioning what God calls sin and kind of saying, eh, I don't know. You know that's as old as time, right? That's when the race got started. That's when the gunshot went off. That's what the serpent in the garden said to Adam and Eve. Did he really say you shouldn't eat from that tree or you'll surely die. Do you see it? Even at the beginning, the original question from Satan is, is that really sin? And we have been peddling that. I have been peddling that ever since my 
<laughs> earliest days as a kid, letting myself off the hook. When I need to be let off the hook, but I can't let myself off the hook. That's why he went to the cross. He went on the hook. So you and I didn't have to. I trade the power of the cross. The power of the cross for the power of self. I trade the foolishness of the cross. I mean, that's what, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, that the cross is the foolishness, right, of those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. That word power, it's the dynamite. It's the dynamos of God. It's the power of God. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, 2 Corinthians 4, so that the life of Jesus might be revealed in my, our body. Do you carry it around? Do you carry around the death of Jesus? Do you contemplate it? Do you consider him who endured what he endured to set us free? Do you trade the power of the cross for the power of self? Which y'all... That's like the equivalent of trying to cut a golf course worth of grass with one of those stupid electric mowers. You don't have the power to do it. But he did. Would you get into the finishing school of the cross? I think some people are so afraid to do this because they feel like if they take a good deep dive and look at their sin, it's gonna lead to such a low self-esteem or depression that probably means you're looking at your sin through your own pride still. You know, a, a low self-esteem is just a deflated high self-esteem, right? If you're really looking at your sin through the cross, I'm sure Randy's drawn it for you, that, you know, the deeper your understanding of your sin goes and the, the higher your understanding of God's goodness and grace grows, the cross just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, Right? It won't lead to a low self-esteem. It'll lead to a high esteem of him, which your flesh does not want to worship, but was made to. As my understanding of my brokenness and sin grows, so does my understanding and the power of the cross. Those are just two of my tells. I've got others. <laughs> but two, two really important ones. When, I, when I'm trying to earn what I've already got through my own effort and when I've stopped calling sin, sin, I've stepped out of the finishing school of the cross. Friends, Jesus was suffered, he was crucified, he died and he was buried and it was for love for us. And for our true spiritual liberation, there is a race for you and I to run, uh, but it's not Jesus' race. He's already run that race for us, Right? A lot of times I'll spend time trying to run his race rather than run the one that he's got before me, right? He has set you free now, not just eternally, but right now. He's given you a new spirit. He's given you a new heart, right? That's why it says there at the end, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Why? So that his spirit could be dwelling in us. He was forsaken that we might be forgiven. Look to the cross, look to Jesus there because it will free you from an endless life of self-justification 
or perpetual self-condemnation. Most people spend their whole life in one of those two ditches, trying to justify themselves or condemning themselves. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you are free because of what he's done. Would you carry it around with you? Why, Paul says, so that you carry around that death so that the life of Jesus might be revealed in your mortal body. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Um, We believe, help us in our unbelief. Nothing in this world, nothing in our flesh um, wants to rest in your finished work. Um, We constantly want to stand on our own merit um, to prove that somehow, even though the curse has applied uh, to every aspect of our lives, that somehow we've escaped it. that we could earn your love and we could be right in our own eyes through our own effort. Um, Would you help us set that down? And would you help us uh, from not uh, minimizing our sin uh, in order to ease our consciences? Uh, Lord, you afford us a guilt-free conscience in full view of all of our sin, not in spite of it. May we rest, may our conscience be clear and our hearts be at peace, not because uh, we're better than everybody else, uh, but because uh, you were the better Adam, the second Adam, the one that came and did what we couldn't. Finish us uh, in the school of your cross. Jesus, we pray, amen.